Our first scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Matthew, chapter 4, verses 17 through 23. Listen for a word from God. From that time, Jesus began to proclaim, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. As he walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw his two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishers. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of people. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. As he went from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, in the boat with their father Zebedee, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and, and left their boat and their father and followed him. Jesus went throughout all Galilee, teaching in synagogues and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and curing every disease and every sickness among the people. Our second text this morning comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 through 18. Listen for God's word. Now I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you be in agreement and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be knit together in the same mind and same purpose. For it has been made clear to me by Chloe's people that there are quarrels among you, my brothers and sisters. What I mean is that each of you says, I belong to Paul, or I belong to Apollos, or I belong to Cephas, or I belong to Christ. Has Christ been divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius so that no one can say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanas. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize but to proclaim the gospel and not with eloquent wisdom, so that the cross of Christ might not be emptied of its power. For the message about the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Holy God, we thank you for your word. I pray that you would open our eyes and our ears, and our hearts, and our minds. In the name of Christ, amen. Well, I've shared part of my baptism story before, but I was baptized in the United Methodist Church when I was 13 years old. And I uh, had not grown up going to church and uh, only started attending as a a high school freshman. And so I decided to participate in the confirmation class that the church offered when um, I was a freshman in high school. And at the end of that class, decided to join the church. But as a requirement, as in many churches, that in order to be a member, you had to be baptized. And so I had to be baptized the night before our confirmation Sunday in a special service that the church held on Saturday nights. And I wasn't the only one. There were several of us in the class that uh, this applied to. And 
it, I, what I remember about it most is that it was kind of like an assembly style, assembly line style baptism. This church had sort of a long kneeler altar at the front of it. And so all of us that had to be baptized, there were, I don't know, maybe eight or nine of us, went up and kneeled in a row at this kneeler. And then the pastor just went down one to the next baptizing us so that we could be baptized and ready to go for our confirmation Sunday the next day. And I remember that it, it was a meaningful experience. I remember feeling like a, a sense of belonging or there was something about being included in that experience. But I know I couldn't have told you many details about what baptism meant. The next day I was uh, confirmed along with my other classmates and that part of the process I had been more prepared for. We'd been in class for weeks and so that part made a little more sense to me. But I didn't really understand the baptism part, and yet I was baptized. Our text this morning talks about divisions in the church of Corinth. And a lot of these divisions actually stemmed from baptismal identity. People that were new Christians that were baptized by one leader over another, and they started to divide themselves based on who their teacher was, who their baptizing pastor was. So this is the very beginning of this Jesus movement when Paul is serving as a missionary and going from city to city to spread the news about Jesus and invite people into the way of faith of Jesus. And Paul had spent in these missionary journeys about a year and a half, a significant amount of time in the city of Corinth. He spent so much time there because this was a city that was really important in the world. It was a major trade city. There were a lot of people that were coming in and out, and he knew that this would be an important place to establish the church. So for a year and a half, as the book of Acts tells us, he got to know people. He stayed in their houses, he taught in the synagogues, he began churches with people, and the very first Christian churches were formed in the city of Corinth. Well, after Paul left to continue on in his missionary journey, some other leaders of the faith came through Corinth as well. The text tells us that in particular, Apollos and Peter, Cephas, came through Corinth at some point. And as these other teachers of the Jesus movement uh, entered into Corinth, some people kind of became groupies, and they sort of picked their favorite of the leaders. Some people really resonated with Paul. Some people really loved Apollo. Some people preferred Peter. And they became these sort of groupies and separated from each other, started talking poorly about the other groups and dividing further and further. These divisions were based on those leaders that baptized them and taught them and that they personally resonated with. And the divisions, the conflict became bad enough that Paul heard about it when he was out and about in these other places and he decided to write them a letter. He knew that this was a critical moment for the future of the church. And he wanted to address this issue of unity head on. And Paul told them, look, this isn't a problem because you have disagreements. Disagreements are always going to happen in community. It's a problem because the conflicts 
are taking precedence over the whole reason you're together in the first place. Suddenly, the conflict was all the people were talking about, why they were better than others, why their particular apostle was better than the other apostles. Now they're no longer living out the mission of Jesus, the mission that drew them together in the first place. They're too busy talking about who's right. They're no longer caring for widows and orphans. They're no longer giving food to those who are hungry, shelter to those who are without. They're no longer including those on the outside. Instead, they're arguing. Have you ever been a part of a group that has had divisions? A family? A church? An organization? Of course you have. We all have. You know, there are an estimated 40 to 45,000 different Christian denominations in the world. Not just churches, denominations, many of which started in some kind of split or conflict or disagreement about something. And, you know, some of those divisions have been sort of helpful to discern who we are and what we believe and how we connect with God, but there is so much that has driven us apart rather than together. Even in communities like this, with people that we largely agree with, we often focus on the things that make us different rather than the things that make us the same. We argue about which pastor has been the best, whether Sarah's sermons are better than Garrett's sermons. We argue about which program has been the best. We argue about whose potluck dish has been the best. And we forget about all of the things we have in common. We all know what it's like to be in communities of division. Paul writes this letter telling the Corinthians to be unified, to focus on the big picture of what they're in doing. And he starts by telling them about being baptized. It doesn't have to do with who's the one who baptized you. It has to do with whose name you were baptized in. The name of Jesus, of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It doesn't matter who performed it. Stop focusing on the leader you like the best and focus on what that leader was trying to draw you to. Paul says you're stopping with the messenger and not getting far enough to hear the message that they have. A little bit later in this letter, Paul will give the believers sort of the thesis mission statement of what they should be focusing on instead. He says, we are all called to be servants of Jesus and stewards of God's mysteries. Servants of Jesus and stewards of God's mysteries. I love that. I want to make that my own personal mission statement. Think about that word, steward. In our modern context, most of us think first about uh, flight attendants, right, on airplanes, stewards. And think about what their job is. On a plane, a steward pays attention to the people. The steward isn't the one flying the plane. They are going along with it. They are offering guidance. They are offering safety. They're providing comfort all along the way. 
We're called to be servants of Jesus and stewards of God's mysteries, not creators of God's mysteries, not heroes of Jesus, but stewards, people who pay attention to God's mysteries and to the people all around us. As they go about this mission, Paul reminds them that they're all in this together. Women, men, leaders, brand new believers, Jewish people, Gentiles. Paul uses the phrase brothers and sisters, siblings in faith. He uses that phrase 38 times in the book of 1 Corinthians. That's more than double the amount of times he uses it anywhere else because he's calling people to remember that they are family. Through baptism, they have become family. We're called to remember our sibling connections in faith and to look at the big picture, too. Pastor Meredith Miller talks about our culture's fascination with heroes, and she talks about how that trips us up sometimes in our own faith. And we have all experienced uh, sermon series or Bible studies or Sunday school classes that focus on the heroes of the Bible, right? I've, I've done sermon series myself on things like this, the heroes of the Bible. But Meredith Miller says, we need to stop doing that because we're not focusing on the right thing. The people can teach us a lot, absolutely, but the hero is always God. The stories in the Bible are primarily about God acting with and through and despite imperfect human beings. When we put just the people on the pedestal, we're listening to the message and sometimes we don't get far enough we're listening to the messengers and not the message. It happens with Bible characters, and we can't help ourselves from making church leaders into heroes and villains as well. We all connect with different personalities and styles and gifts more than others, and it's hard to expand our imagination sometimes beyond the people to the thing they're pointing to. Many churches are built on pastoral personality, and particularly in the non-denominational world, it happens where churches are created around a really vibrant person and personality, and then when something happens or that pastor leaves or they're caught up in a scandal or they're just proven to be a regular imperfect human, the whole church crumbles. Paul reminds us that we need to look at what these leaders are pointing to not just look at the leader. You know, that church that I was baptized in when I was 13 had a wonderful, amazing, amazing pastor named Harvey. And I admittedly have thought for much of my life of him as a hero. And I've looked back at his tenure at that particular church with rose-colored glasses and just seen him as a mentor and a model of a pastor. But this text has challenged me to begin thinking of him in a different way. It's challenged me to think of him and his impact in my life, not just for his sake, but for how he did point beyond himself, for how he was a servant of Jesus and a steward of the mysteries of God. So I trained myself this week to say, well, what would that look like to talk about Harvey in that way? I might say things like, Harvey was a servant of Jesus, who gave graciously 
to people in need when he didn't think anyone was looking. Harvey stewarded the mysteries of God's presence and God's playfulness in a way that I could understand. Harvey made me feel God's radical inclusion as a high school student who didn't fit in with the youth group. Harvey made me feel included, but more than that, Harvey made me feel God's radical inclusion. This is Paul's point. We need to think beyond just the people, beyond the surface things to the God that they're teaching us about. When we see God as the true hero, we can get on with the business of acting the way Jesus did and helping to steward God's mysteries to others. We're going to continue to be thinking about baptism in this way in this church. We say baptism is a kind of kinship family with all who reside in Christ. And there's a lot of imagery packed into baptism. It has to do with welcoming into the family of faith. It has to do with a cleansing of sin. It has to do with a remembrance of all of the ways that God has acted through water in Scripture. And we all come, as we learned a moment ago, from different denominations and understandings of baptisms ourselves. And so we already represent the whole breadth of what baptism has meant to people across time and space. Presbyterians baptize people of any age. We baptize infants, we baptize teenagers, we baptize adults, all ages. Some denominations, as we know, only baptize folks once they can confess themselves Jesus is Lord and decide for themselves that they want to be baptized. There's something beautiful about that tradition as well. But in the Presbyterian Church, we say that the baptism of infants is so significant because it reminds us that God's love claims people even before we understand it, even before we deserve it, even before we earn it. God's faithfulness is sure even when human faithfulness to God is not. God's grace is sufficient. This means in the Presbyterian Church that we believe in one baptism, that we do not rebaptize people. So as long as you were baptized in a tradition that used water and that spoke of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that wherever you were baptized and whatever their understanding was of baptism, that counts. That is your baptism. In fact, we're not allowed as pastors to rebaptize you if you have already been baptized in that way. You know, after my baptism when I was 13 years old, I changed a lot as a person. I grew in many ways, and in my, you know, early to mid-20s, in my early adulthood, I connected to a Presbyterian church and grew in faith and felt deeply, deeply connected to Jesus in a more meaningful way than I had as a teenager. There were points in that period of my life when I wished that I hadn't already been baptized because I wanted to be baptized in a way that felt more meaningful. I, I understood it now. I, I, I felt like it could make sense in a new way, and I could maybe join the friends of mine who were getting baptized in a really special, significant way. There was a group on a mission trip that got baptized in the Pacific Ocean, and I thought, oh, 
That would have been so cool. I regretted in some ways this 13-year-old baptism and the assembly line because I didn't really understand it. I didn't remember who the pastor had been. It wasn't Harvey. It was someone else in that church, and it just didn't seem significant enough. But isn't this exactly what Paul is talking about? The significance is never about our own feelings or understanding or about the fame of the pastor or the body of water that we're being baptized in or the size of the service and how many people witness it. The significance is always the grace of God that it points to. I love that we embrace infant baptism in the Presbyterian Church because infant and toddler baptisms, if you've ever seen one, are always imperfect. Babies are crying, they're grabbing for the water, they're screaming. Sometimes, there was one baptism where this toddler, as I was coming with the water, said, No! (laughs) What do you do with that? Even against our will, God's grace is there for us. Infant baptism is often imperfect, but it reminds us that it's not about us in the first place. It's always about God's grace. There's a special holiness that can be felt when things go wrong, even in the midst of meaningful sacraments. There's a pastor in the Presbytery of Detroit who was uh, presiding over communion several months ago, and the deacons or whoever in the church um, that had been in charge of preparing the table for communion had forgotten the loaf that she was going to break for the words of institution. So this pastor got to that point of the liturgy and she lifted up the napkin on the plate and there was no bread there. And the deacons felt terrible and they were scrambling and apologizing from the pews and she just calmly said, it's okay. She took one of the prepackaged sets of communion that many of us have used during pandemic times and she peeled off the crinkly little plastic part at the top and pulled out the thin little dry wafer and broke that and said it doesn't matter how beautiful the bread is or how big it is or if you can even see it in the back the significance is God's abundance can be seen even in this even in the imperfect things that pastor pointed beyond herself in that moment to the truth of God that she was speaking of As I mentioned earlier, I invite you to be thinking about your own baptism. At the end of April here at Fort Street, we're going to have a service of baptism and baptismal remembrance. And we would love for you to participate. If you have not been baptized, we'd love for you to consider if this is a time that you would like to be baptized. If you have been baptized, we'd love for you to consider if you'd like to be a part of a remembrance to come and receive a blessing with water as we remember your baptism. And we'll celebrate together what that connection means for all of us as siblings in faith. So collect those artifacts if you have them. Collect the stories, hear about your own baptism. And in those particularities, we'll recognize that we are all part of a family of faith together. That no matter where we were baptized or in what style, we're part of the family of God now. Your baptism connects you to a community of faith 
across time and denomination and rightness and wrongness. So remember it, as imperfect as it was. And remember the truth that it points you to, the God that it points us all to, knowing that we are all called to be servants of Jesus and stewards of God's mysteries. Would you pray with me? Holy God, we pray for unity. Point us beyond the particulars of our own preference and ideas to the truth of your grace and love. Help us be people who focus on the sibling connections that we have rather than on what divides us. Lord, bless us as we worship you. In Jesus' name, amen.